Well, let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray for guidance and wisdom, that you would bless the things that I've prepared, that these might be a blessing to each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, it's possible that you're wondering how it is that we've jumped back to chapter 14 this morning after having just spent a few weeks in chapter 15. Well, the short answer is that we skipped chapter 14 in order to get to the first part of chapter 15 on Easter Sunday, which means that now we've finished with chapter 15, we go back to chapter 14 and then jump next week to chapter 16. To get us into chapter 14, I'd like to begin with the story of the surgeon, the engineer and the politician, who are all debating which of their professions was the oldest. The surgeon said, well, Eve was made from Adam's rib. That, of course, was a surgical procedure. Obviously, surgery is the oldest profession. The engineer replied, yes, but before that, order was created out of chaos. And that most certainly involved engineering. The politician smiled and said triumphantly, ah, yes, but just a minute, who created all the chaos? Chaos is a great word, isn't it? If you're as old as me, you'll remember that in the TV show Get Smart, that Max and 99 were agents of control and the bad guys were the agents of chaos. Chaos may describe the world. Chaos may describe your house from time to time. What about chaos in the church? Now that would be unthinkable. But according to what we've read this morning in Corinth, it was very descriptive of the life and the worship of the church. It was par for the course. It was very real. You may have been to church services that were and are a little different to ours, but it was not that things were a little different at Corinth, but rather that it seems that the worship was chaotic, almost out of control. So Paul had to put pen to paper or quill to parchment or whatever he wrote with to get some order into what was happening in the worship, to put things right and to address the issue that two kinds of verbal communication, that is tongues and prophesying, were being misused and abused. So what we have in this chapter 14 opens up a window for us to see into the first century world of the church at worship. It's a window very different to ours. And looking in that window, Paul saw that the chaos that was happening in the church needed some control and some order with respect to some of the ways in which the gifts of tongues and prophecy were being used. Now, before we get into the context, uh, the detail of the text, we need to get into the context because that's important. In chapter 14, Paul is wrapping up 
his engagement with a various, a variety of problems and divisions that were erupting in the Corinthian congregation in public worship, which began all the way back in chapter 11, where he started to address role relationships between men and women, then divisions at the level of social status erupting in the context of the Lord's Supper, then divisions when it came to the way that spiritual gifts were being used at Corinth, and he used the metaphor of the body being with many members to illustrate and explain why we value and celebrate our unity and we celebrate our diversity with different gifts, different members having different gifts. In chapter 13, he taught us that the operating system that must be installed and running on the desktop of our spiritual lives must be love, that love trumps gifts and love defines how we use our gifts because gifts without love is either useless or dangerous. In chapter 14, Paul kind of brings spiritual gifts back to the topic, back to the table, and becomes very specific in relation to the practice of the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Noting as we do, as we come to those things this morning, like most Reformed churches, our understanding is that these gifts were necessary, they were useful in the time of the Apostles, they were important in the establishment of the written scriptures, but they are no longer gifts that are valid for the church of today. Now, you might think differently to that. That's okay. I'm happy to discuss it later, but that's the position we hold to, that it's not unsupported by scripture and not unsupported by history. And so the chapter's very long, as we read this morning. We can tackle it under three headings. As Paul sought to bring order into the chaos and put things in their proper place. Uh, First, we know that Paul wrote of the proper place for tongue speaking and worship. Tongue speaking and worship. As we've heard, Uh, One of those extremes in Corinth was the abuse of tongues. Some thought themselves to be the bee's knees, to be the spiritual elite, the upper class, because they had this ability to speak in a language unknown to the rest of the hearers. And this often led them to be guilty of spiritual pride as they looked down on others who didn't have the gift. So here, you can pull out all the verses relating to tongues, as I have done in chapter 14, and put all the ones relating to prophecy, as I will do, as we will do in the second point. We can see some instructions that Paul gives about tongues in worship, which were for that church at that time. Six things Paul says. He taught them that tongues consist of words of praise to God. Verse 2. It says that the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. The content of the address given in tongues is upward, not downward, or horizontal, it's vertical. 
Uh, Tongues are not a means, or were not at the time, by which God was giving messages to us, but by them in their original usage, tongues directed praise to God. Obviously in Acts chapter 2, when Peter and the others spoke in tongues, that was different. Uh, God declared his word uh, to his people who heard his word and gave messages uh, to them. A second observation from verse 2 is that tongues were quite separate from those who spoke them. Verse 14 says the one who speaks in tongues does not have his mind participate in the experience. The impression is that Paul is giving that those who spoke in tongues did so even though they did not know what they were saying at the time. That's why Paul tells them that those who speak in tongues should pray for the ability to interpret their own speech because eventually they could teach their hearers what actually they said. A third thing that Paul taught, tongues of his day were known languages. In verse 10, Paul says there are a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. He indicates that though that some kind of human language is involved through the use of tongues, Clearly, in the case of Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, when all sorts of people heard in their own native tongues the words that Peter and the apostles apostles spoke in praise of God's deeds. Then, fourth, Peter teaches here that tongues were used for building up the body. Paul has already said that spiritual gifts should be for the common good. That's why he says in verse 6, if I come to you speaking in tongues... What shall I profit you? What will you get out of it? If you don't understand what I say, what blessing is that going to be to you? The thrust of his thinking is to start with tongues, but he wants to get the situation where the circle is broadened and others can be included and encouraged. It seems to have been that tongue speakers were built up in their speaking, but Paul says spiritual gifts should do others good also. Fifth, Paul says tongues need to be interpreted. He uses that illustration concerning a musical instrument that sounded with uncertain notes. Who will run to the battle if the bugle doesn't call clearly? In the same way, if tongues are just going to be a whole lot of noise, a whole lot of babble, Paul says don't have them unless there is someone to interpret them. Imagine if I prepared some of this message in Icelandic and spoke to you in Icelandic and you went, I have no idea what he said. It would be pointless. Communication is supposed to happen when the speaker and the hearer are on the same par. And then Paul adds one more clause about tongues. Tongues are not a sign for believers. Paul quotes here from Isaiah 28, a passage that tells us for the people of Israel who are about to be sent off into exile, they would hear the sound of tongues. That is, they would hear the sound of foreign languages as those coming to take them off into exile came near. And those foreign languages would be a sign that they're about to be judged. And from that, Paul concludes 
The sound of tongues is not the be-all and end-all gift that convinces unbelievers of the truth of the gospel. In fact, it's the opposite. The sound of tongues would be a sign of judgment, as it was in Isaiah's day, that unbelief will be judged. Paul estimated rightly that if an unbeliever walked in to a church meeting in Corinth where everyone was speaking in a different language, would he not come to the conclusion that the people were mad? That there's no sense to what's being said here? Tongues themselves are of no use, Paul says, if they hide the proclamation of the truth that people need to hear in order to be saved. No use. Secondly, Paul called for the proper place for prophecy in worship. Again, still in verses 1 to 25, we tread upon controversial ground that needs this writer to go with it, that the church in the first century not only had tongue speakers, the church in the first century had prophets who not only foretold what would happen, but who would foretell God's word to the people. Before the New Testament came to be written in what we have today, it was spoken Prophets would prophesy and tell of what God wishes us to hear. So when Paul refers to prophesying, he's speaking something like, referring to someone who speaks a bit like myself, who's preaching in a known and an understood language, declaring the word of God to the church as revealed by God, to the prophet in such a way that it benefited the hearers. So at some point in the order of worship in Church of Corinth, uh, there were tongue speakers and at other times there were prophets speaking, uh, both involving speaking and listening. But unlike tongues, prophets were declaring the message of the people, uh, of God to the people, not from the people to God, but from God to the people in a language that was known. What does Paul say about prophesying? Uh, First he says it's a greater gift than that of tongues. Verse 2, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Verse 5, I wish you would, even more that you would prophesy, and greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. The reason why Paul can say this is because declaring the truth in a known language is other person-centred, unlike tongues, which seem to be more self-centred. And because prophesying was not for the purpose of building up just one, but the blessing of all, in that sense, it is a greater gift. Second, Paul adds that prophecy's purpose is for the upbuilding of those who hear it. Paul goes on to say he would rather speak five words that are understood than 10,000 words that are not understood for one simple reason. Those five words could be acted upon rather than the 10,000 
which will just go over our heads. And he mentions three ways that these words will build up the hearers. Edification, exhortation and consolation. Edification makes people more capable and less dependent than they were before. If we were to use a human arm to illustrate these three effects, we would say that edification strengthens the arm. Encouragement has the same Greek word root used to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit and means to come alongside someone and enter their world, an arm upon a shoulder, around a shoulder. Edification, strengthening the arm. Encouragement, an arm upon a shoulder. And then consolation might be defined as a ministry to those who are broken, who have lost hope, bringing to mind the picture of an arm embracing another person in need. Where are our prophets? Well, I understand that we don't need them anymore. We have the word of God in our own language. And in his plan, in his time, God has withdrawn this gift for his people where that word of God has become evident and readily available given that the word of God is the full and complete scripture for us and we don't need prophets to tell us what God wills any longer. Thirdly, in verses 25 to 40, Paul writes about the proper place for order in worship and and we Presbyterians breathe a whole lot easier. Ah, Feel a whole lot more comfortable We come to this point by reading between the lines and reading what Paul says about this topic and noting that this was where the Corinthians needed the most instruction given the way things had gotten way out of hand with apparently the interruptions to worship that were happening either by tongue speaking or prophecy. That's why Paul is clear on the issue of ensuring that everything is done decently and in order. There's room for participation as one brings a hymn and another a revelation or another a tongue or an interpretation. But this need for order means that not everyone is getting up at the same time to grab the microphone. God is not the God of disorder. He's not the God of chaos. And worship by rights reflects that aspect of God's nature. And as we heard earlier, which I won't repeat it in full here, it seems that Paul applied this principle also to the issue caused by women who were getting up out of turn to ask questions at most inappropriate times. And to them, Paul said, no, you should sit down and listen. Now, some have read Paul's words meaning to mean that women should never, ever, ever speak at church. But that can't be what he said. It can't be what he means because chapter 11 he's already written about women praying and women prophesying. So by balancing scripture with scripture, even from the same letter, a case can be made for the fact 
Paul was not seeking to put women down and put a gag on them forever, but to ensure that all things were being done decently and in order. What do we make of this long chapter? What do we make of the tongues? What do we make of the prophecies? What do we make of the chaos? What do we make of the apostles' demand that all things be done well? Well, there are four things I think we can take away today about true worship. Four things that will help us. For a start, let's note that God directs the elements of true worship. Imagine if God had left us no instructions at all about how to worship him. And so anything was plausible. Imagine the chaos and the confusion we could so easily plunge ourselves into, even deeper than many churches often get into, in their attempts to please themselves or those who attend and not consider what God has said about worship. It's a principle we dare not forget, that when we come to worship, it is God who dictates how we should do it, not how we think we should do it. The moment we lose sight of that principle is the moment we cease to function as the church or to function. The second principle here is that about worship is that balance describes the nature of it. Paul wrote all that he did to guard against the excesses and extremes of the Corinthians who were going mad about tongues and their importance at the expense of others who had less remarkable things to contribute, whether it was a song or a prayer or a hymn. A balance of all these things and a measure of participation in these things in an orderly fashion seems to be what God desires in worship that is suited and honouring to his name. Then, thirdly, the principle we note is that communication of truth is vital to worship. When you think about it, the remarkable thing in all this is not that some could get up and spout off in other languages, It's not that some could prophesy great revelations from the Lord, but the simple fact that God allows anyone to say anything at all. We do not deserve, we do not have the right by our own abilities to even name his name. Or sing one word of praise to him. It's a remarkable thing that he has let himself be known and that he allows humans to say anything at all about him. And whether what is said by tongues or prophesying or by today, by reading aloud his word or preaching from his word is all less remarkable than the fact that we are sinners who are saved by grace that we may speak of anything at all of him who is holy. 
if we learn anything, we learn that what we say about him is not something we do to please ourselves because he takes his truth seriously and it's this that is the mark of true worship. Don't be confused by churches that give you innovation and new things all under the name of spirit-led worship. Don't fall for that. That's not the mark of the spirit-leading worship at all. It's not innovation, but obedience. It's worship under the authority of the word of God that God approves of. It's by the sound of the word of God that will be edified and built up and by which people will hear of Jesus. Verse 38 tells us that Paul knew no other way in that. Riding as an apostle, urging as he does, in order that worship will be proper and right and not chaotic. But in saying that, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I've got two moderators here. We're Presbyterians. We love order. We do things the proper way. But as we do things the proper way, what's our danger? Decently in order isn't everything. You can be decent and in order and you can be dead. And we don't want that. In the next chapter of Isaiah, chapter 29, the Lord says of the people, This people draw near me with their mouth and honour me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Orthodox worship may well be what the passage teaches, but let's remember what we must guard against. Orthodox worship that's dead. Light but no warmth. Truth but no love. Doctrine but no devotion. Head but not heart. And from that, perhaps more than the other end of the spectrum, is where we need to give our attention. To worship that begins not whenever I or anyone else says, let us worship God, but when you ask the Lord to search your heart and cleanse it, cleanse it and fix it so that it is a heart that loves him and his word and is obedient to him, bringing from your own heart worship that is flavoured by the taste and the blessing of grace. Is that how you want it to be? Is that what you want this worship to be? Not just ritual, not just form, but God meeting with his people and them meeting with him because he speaks through his word. May the Lord make it so. Will you pray with me?
that we might have tender hearts receiving his word. Let's pray. Now, God and Father, we thank you for your word. It's sometimes difficult to grasp, sometimes opens up for us new avenues to think about. And we thank you that as we meet together for worship, you are not unconcerned about what we do. And you know and see the state of our hearts. We confess as Presbyterians we are awful, a decency in an order. That's our almost our motto. But Lord, we would want to shy away from being dead and having hearts that are not engaged. As we hear the Apostle Paul are guiding the Corinthians into order instead of chaos, may we also heed your word uh, guiding us uh, to life and not just order. Grant your blessing upon us each time we come together as we pray that you do and we thank you that you do, that as your word is opened up and explained, that you are glorified and honoured. Do so more and more, we pray, that as we live and work and serve in this world, the worship we offer you may be pleasing in your sight, not just what happens in here, but out there in the world. As soon as we leave this building, we pray this, that you would oversee all this, and speak to our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.